God took upon himself the mantle, the persona, the attitude, the manner of the servant, even to death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and put a crown on his head, King of kings, Lord of lords. And Jesus seats with God in glory. And uh, there's just a little bit of a danger when you're in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, that you're away up in the clouds, you're moved by the power, the depth of the theology, the poetry, the richness. Or your minds are in the eternal glory where Jesus is, where one day we will be. And so Paul brings us back down to earth in Philippi in Edinburgh. Verse 12, chapter 2. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my absence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out my, your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run nor labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare, for everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me, and I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again and you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honour men like him because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. Amen. Now the first heading on the service sheet, verses 12 and 13, you'll see it there, working out your salvation. Let me read these very practical, earthy, realistic verses again. Verse 12, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Keep calm and carry on. That has become something of a catchphrase in our culture. I guess it captures the British way of doing things. There are many variations on the theme Keep calm and drink tea. We have a mug at home. Keep calm and carry on. And uh, I could go on and on. Uh, I did find some very interesting religious ones on the website. Keep calm and relax. It's Sunday. That's for you, not me. 
keep calm and love Jesus a lot. Now what Paul says to these Christians in this little church in Philippi, he says to them, keep calm and carry on. That's what he says, as you have always obeyed, continue to work out your salvation. Keep steady and carry on. What is it there to keep on doing? Working out their salvation. What does he mean when he says, your salvation? What does that mean? Well, it means, I think, your status, your identity in Jesus, who you are as a Christian, and your God-given capacity for Christ-like attitude. Keep on with Christ-likeness. That's what he's talking about in verse 13. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. God is at work in your lives. He is. He's changing you. Let me say to you that he really is changing you. Changing me. It's impossible for it not to happen. But we are not passive in that process. Our response to what God desires to do in our lives matters. The way we respond allows that transforming power of God to take place or be checked. That's why Paul says, work out your salvation. I guess the best illustration of that is the gym. You are mostly uh, younger than me. Uh, I I mentioned in the first service not to be discouraged at gym illustrations uh, if you haven't renewed your gym membership like me. Here's a chance. It's a great image, though, of working out your salvation. Some of you will have watched the Olympics yesterday in Sochi. Uh, You may have watched the snowboarders, these amazing people who do astonishing things on a snowboard. Quadruple somersaults backwards with a flip. They get two shots in the Olympics. How many times do you think they did these quadruple somersaults with a backflip to get to that? How many times do you think they did that? Thousands and thousands and thousands. How many bruises? One of them had a broken rib yesterday while they were doing it. And in the spiritual realm, we need to go to the spiritual gym to work out our salvation. What does it mean? The daily discipline of reading our Bibles and praying each day. Now, I hope as a church family, with all that we're facing, every one of us is reading our Bibles and praying each day. It's just steadying, steadying stuff. Paul says, work it out. And if you're not, well, you're like a lot of other people sitting here too. We all struggle with that. But what an opportunity always to get that rhythm in the diary. Paul says, work it out with fear and trembling. What does he mean by that? Well, if you watch these guys on their snowboards, I was fearful and trembling watching them. What does he mean when he says fear and trembling in a Christian life? He means, I think, work out your salvation in sight of a holy God. Don't be casual with your life as a Christian. Don't be indifferent to what God has done in you. Don't think you can go it alone and live a fruitful life without reading your Bible and praying. Remember, God is a holy God. God is at work in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. What is the end goal of 
God's work in you and you working out your salvation, it is to conform your will to his will. Your actions, your attitude to his. Don't work against him. Work with him. And do it with fear and trembling. And that is how Paul says we cultivate servant-hearted, loving, sacrificial attitudes to one another. On Thursday night at Central Focus, Jason Carter and Jason Atkinson, they come to the first service with their families. We're about to lose them. We keep losing people. It's sad, but great at the same time. The Carters are off to America and then in five months to Equatorial Guinea as a family for the next 20 years. The Atkinsons, as a family, are going to Sydney and then from Sydney to China in six months. It's exciting what they're going to do. One of the slides Jason Atkinson showed us was a room full of Christians in China physically on their knees praying. Very moving. I wonder if you really struggle with that daily rhythm of reading your Bible and pray. You know, the best advice I was given as a youngster, which I've rarely heeded, is go to your room, shut the door, and get on your knees and pray. Actually makes you do it. It's good practical stuff. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Second, verses 14 to 18, holding out the word of life. Read again from verse 14. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. Do everything without complaining or arguing. It's very practical, the apostle there, isn't he? He's been in the clouds. We've been in the exaltation of Christ, the throne room of God. He's talking about being blameless and pure, children of God, shining like stars in the universe. It's big stuff. Beginning of it all, he says, stop grumbling or complaining. It's human nature, isn't it? Complaining. I was sharing with Sally this morning the content of the sermon and I got to the bit about stop grumbling and complaining and in that lovely, wifely way, she just had to look at me and said, yes, dear, What have you been doing since you got up (laughs) on a Sunday? It's true, isn't it? In your small group, in church life, your Sunday club team, music group, CU, flat, family, grumbling, arguing, is not conducive to fellowship and togetherness. I wonder if Paul is hinting here at something that he's going to say later in the letter. Just glance across to chapter 4 and verse 2. He says, I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. It's striking in this big letter, but all this stuff, he just says, these two ladies, fallen out, come on, One of my Bible commentators suggests some practical applications and says, somewhat scurrilously, they may have been members of the Flower Committee. It's a bit unfair, I think. They may have been members of Chord, or Focus, or small groups, or music team, or elders, or staff team, or cleaning team, whatever. He says, come on. Why does he take all this trouble in a letter as big and as grand as this in the Bible to name these two ladies 
Why does he do it? Because things as small as that get their foothold inside a church. Notice also back in chapter 2, the link between verses 14 and 15. Do everything, verse 14, without complaining or arguing, so that, verse 15, you may become blameless and pure. Children of God, without fault. Striking connection, isn't it? A peaceable, rather than a critical spirit, corresponds with a holy, godly life. It's a striking connection. Or grumbling doesn't correspond with a godly, holy life. You see the picture Paul is building here through this. He's building a picture of the the servant-hearted, loving person who's got a sacrificial attitude towards others, who looks to the interests of others, not their own, who works out their salvation with fear and trembling, who reads their Bible and prays each day, who's not a grumbler, not argumentative, who's godly. That's the picture, and that kind of person is worth their weight in gold in a church, in a small group, in a CU They're the glue, they're the super glue, the araldite that holds the church together. Now, verses 15 and 16, look with me in your Bibles. Paul holds two ideas together. Holiness and holding out the word of life. You see in the text, verse 15, holiness, blameless and pure, children of God without fault, verse 16, as you hold out the word of life. Now there's a powerful Gospel combination. One, a holy life, a distinctive Christian community, or a distinctive Christian CU. Two, holding out the word of life, clear gospel witness. Very simple parallel. Holiness, holding out the gospel. They run together like tram tracks. And what impact does it have when holiness and holding out the word of the gospel are fused together in the life of a Christian or a Christian community, Paul says, in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars. A distinctive community holding out the word of life shines like a star. What does a star do? Gives light where there is darkness. A holy Christian. And, and what's a holy Christian? It, usually someone who does, does that basic stuff, reads the Bible, prays each day, has a sacrificial attitude towards other. A holy Christian who holds out the word of life, who engages with all the struggles in personal evangelism. Paul says, you shine like a star. It's great, isn't it? But it's attainable and practical. But there are costs, consequences to shine like stars in a dark world, to hold on to and hold out the word of life of the gospel is not easy. It's what this little church in Philippi were discovering. It's not easy to be distinctive and keep a clear gospel witness. And Paul says to them and says to us, yes, there might be consequences, there might be struggles and suffering and pressure, but there's joy in the Lord. Now, Look at verse 17. Even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with all of you. There's a a strange gospel paradox, isn't it? How is Paul saying this? Even if I'm getting flack for the sake of the gospel, well, I'm going to rejoice anyway. What do you think he says, the apostle? 
what he says is, yes, it's hard, but I rejoice in the Lord. It's that paradox fused together. Tough times, joy, suffering, rejoicing. Just before we move on, let me just dwell for a moment on the phrase holding out the word of life. It's what uh, Peter and Andy were talking about in Mission Weeks in the CUs. Holding out the word of life. It's what happens in, in Christianity Explored, in the quiz night, whatever, holding out the word of life. The great vision statement for the church. Let's change our vision statement. Change every three years. Holding out the word of life. That's what the church is. And just remember, when you hold out the word of life, it feels weak, it looks weak, it sounds weak, it sounds pitiful. But it's the word of life, and it brings life. It's powerful. It's always been powerful, always will be powerful. Working out your salvation, holding out the word of life. If Paul has brought us back down to earth, then in verses 19 to 30, he roots it all in a practical reality by giving us two examples to follow, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Now, Timothy and Epaphroditus, these are the kinds of people, if you're a minister, or you're an elder in the church, you want the church to be full of Timothys and full of Epaphrodituses. And let me encourage you, there are lots of these people here. Lots of Timothys, lots of Epaphrodituses. Timothy first, verses 19 through 24. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare, for everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served me in the work of the gospel. I hope therefore to send him as soon as I see how things go with me, and I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. Paul hopes to visit the church in Philippi again. He, he's in prison though, he can't do that. So he says, I'm going to send Timothy to you and hopefully I'll be able to come afterwards but I'm going to send Timothy for now. Striking what Paul says about him, isn't it? I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. Timothy is genuinely concerned for the welfare of this little church in Philippi. See how effective Timothy's are in a church? People who are genuinely concerned for the welfare of the church. What is the welfare that Paul has in mind? Well, verse 22, the work of the gospel Verse 21, the interests of Jesus Christ. Timothy is concerned. I guess it can boil down to this, that the gospel work going on in Philippi would keep on carrying on. That's his concern. And what does Timothy do? He doesn't send an email. He's going to go. And he's going to speak to them. And he's going to encourage them. It's going to talk to them for their welfare. And there's a great attitude to imitate. Not an attitude of mind, simply, but an attitude that translates into action. And then Epaphroditus, this chap who wished his parents had given him another name. I did say in the service earlier 
that uh, it's the kind of thing you can say and you can put your foot in it. Nobody has yet given their child the name of Paphroditus here. And almost certainly someone was planning to. It is a mouthful. He's a great fellow, Epaphroditus. Let's read about him as we close. I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus. Don't think of Epaphroditus as somebody who's, say, 50 or 60. or, or Think of him as someone who's maybe 25 or 20. I think it's necessary to send back to you, Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you in his distress because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad that I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honour men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. You know, you get an insight into the kind of guy he is, Epaphroditus. He's more concerned about their concern for him that he was ill, than that their concern he was ill. It's great, isn't it? He was the representative from the church at Philippi that had been sent to Paul in Rome. And, and uh, you can imagine in the, the elders' meeting when they said, who are we going to send to Paul this time? Epaphroditus already had his case packed. He's just instinctively an encourager. And what's he like? Paul describes him as a brother. He's loyal. A fellow worker, a grafter a fellow soldier, a fighter for truth, a messenger, the one who goes and is willing to go, a man of compassion, a man of courage, a man who is more concerned about their worry that he almost died than that he almost died. Now, say you're in a small group Many of you are. Or you're on a CU committee, as some of you are. Or you're in a whole group, as many of you are. What a good example Epaphroditus is to follow. Be to each other like a brother or sister. The proper, proper fellowship. Be someone who grafts. He's a worker. Never miss your cleaning rota. Don't leave it to somebody else. This is the kind of stuff that binds a church together. Someone is a fighter for truth. Epaphroditus is a great kind of fighter for truth when you marry his fighting for truth with his brotherliness and his compassion and his humility and his selflessness. It's quite a potent combination. He's a messenger, someone who goes and does stuff. He is with Timothy, bar the Lord Jesus, who is the very best, an example of someone, surely, who looks not to their own interests, but to the interests of others. So, go home and work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Read your Bibles, pray, and let God transform you and hold out the word of life and lead a holy life and you will shine like stars and we'll shine like a star as a church. And if you're stuck for good examples, go to the Lord Jesus first and then Timothy and then Epaphroditus and be like them. Let's pray.
Lord, we pray that we would just do that as a church, individually and corporately, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to read our Bibles, to pray each day, and to be holy, distinctive people, individually and corporately, to hold out the word of life, that life-changing, powerful gospel that feels weak, looks weak, it's hard to hold it out. Help us to do so because of its potent impact. And thereby, may we truly shine like stars, illuminating the darkness with the light of the gospel individually and as a church family. And help us to follow these good examples, the Lord Jesus first, and then Timothy and Epaphroditus. And help us to do it, Lord, with that combination of realism that is not always easy, but with our deep-seated, steady, heartfelt rejoicing in the Lord Jesus. And all that we ask in his name and for his sake. Amen.